0: Welcome to Mindful Movement with Naya, a podcast about all things mind-body connection. I'm Naya Kalmels, nationally certified Pilates teacher, yoga teacher, integrative movement specialist, and owner of Mindful Movement. This podcast is meant to educate, elevate, and inspire anyone interested in feeling and moving better. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Mindful Movement with Naya. I'm Naya Kalmels, and I have on the show today, Kyle Mastrupal, and we are looking forward to talking about balanced muscle development. Kyle, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: So I just wanna do a quick introduction because you have a long list of experience and formal training. Um, I know that you're currently working as a personal trainer, but you also have a decade of experience working in the health and fitness industry. I know that your youngest client was four years old. And as I like to say, your client with the most life experience, 89 years old, you've coached over 50 uh, different sports teams from high school all the way to professional athletes. And you have a bachelor's degree in exercise science from Sacred Heart University and a master's of science in, um, I believe it's nutrition and exercise science from University of Tampa, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, so lots of formal training so many certifications, I can't even name them all. And you've been a strength and conditioning coach um, and a basketball coach, and currently own your own business, the Bay Fitness, as a personal trainer, serving people in home and setting up gyms for them in their own homes. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on our show.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for the welcoming intro.
0: Absolutely. So As I mentioned, our theme is balanced muscle development. This is one of the Pilates principles. And it's something that Joseph Pilates believed was really important in our Pilates practice to create better posture and to move better in our bodies. And I'm curious kind of how you see that being, um, involved in what you do as a personal trainer.
1: Yep. So when I hear that, I immediately think compensation patterns. Because if something is off balance, it's a snowball effect. So it might be something within the knee that then goes up to the hip, the back, and it snowballs all into one. And in my business, the most common referrals that I get are from physical therapists, chiropractors, and acupuncturists. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think compensation patterns, because that's what I'm used to getting with my business is those who I got to find wherever that break in the chain was and try to put that back together. And then you start to see things come back together from there and to more natural movements.
0: So when you talk about compensation patterns, I know what you're talking about, but could you give us an example of how someone might compensate or what kind of pattern might develop?
1: Absolutely. So knee pain, you get a whole lot of, in your practice, I'm sure you hear about it all the time. Pretty much everyone's gonna have some knee pain at some point during their life patellofemoral pain if you want to use the fancy term and when people have patellofemoral pain you see from different studies that glute max activation which is the powerhouse of your lower body is down as high as 33% your gluteus medius which is a big stability muscle on the side of your glutes helps keep your hips from tilting really good postural muscle that's down 26 27% and you also see a delay in activation so your glutes, which again, are going to be your, the powerhouse of your lower body and for helping with posture as well, their strength is down, but also the time at, to contraction is slower, all because of knee pain that they then started. You, you see them favor the quad a little bit more. You actually see higher quad activation with knee pain because they're trying to gingerly go around that knee, but they actually turn off the other muscles around it and put all that pressure on the part that's hurting them in the first place.
0: Okay, I love that you use this as an example, because number one, when you talk about patellar femoral pain, it's also known as runner's knee, correct?
1: One of the things it's known as, yeah.
0: And you know that I'm a distance runner. I absolutely love my time on the trails. I've worked with clients as a Pilates coach um, who are experiencing symptoms of runner's knee. And as you talk about the glutes, I can literally feel my right glute media is talking right back to you like, oh, yeah, we're important. (laughs) And um, you in my own body, I have experienced what you're talking about, but I've also watched it in some of my clients, Um, which brings me to you've worked with a lot of athletes. Um, If you, for example, were to work with somebody who was dealing with runner's knee or patellar femoral pain. Uh, As a personal trainer and someone who has studied exercise science, what kind of things would you have them do? Like, let's get into like real practical application to create more balanced muscle development in the athlete's body. Somebody who's using certain muscles all the time and perhaps not using others.
1: Yeah. So you actually, as you said that one basketball player I had came to mind, um, I won't use her name, but when I was at Seton Hill university, she was a basketball player. And it wasn't just that patellofemoral pain. It also turned to shin splints because everything was internally rotated. Knees were going forward. And it wasn't just, hey, do these few exercises. I had to assess her movement. So I was out on the court one day after she had come in before practice. And she said, hey, my hip flexors, which is the front of your hips, um, are super tight. Can you stretch them out? And it piqued my curiosity. So I went up to practice. I was warmed them up before practice started. Stayed there to watch her. And I noticed on defense, she was just so far forward. And and I said to her, I'm like, how do you feel on defense? She's like, I'm so slow. I'm like, well, you're not necessarily slow. Just everything is tilted forward and you can't move laterally because of how all that pain has now. She's not just gingerly on her knees, but on her ankles as well to not put pressure on her shins. So she couldn't move laterally because the front of her body was so tight. So something that we did was I had her squat um, at a wall and don't think, what would it be? I guess it would be convex. So rather than the walls here, it's more of, I like towards me, I'm on that corner of the wall, have her squat and she can't fall forward because if she goes forward, well, then her upper body is going to hit that wall in front of her. So getting her to be a little more upright. So a normal pattern that many people do, but getting her to adjust how she's moving it, So that she doesn't go into that same movement pattern and she gets used to using her backside more rather than tilting forward to try to get down to the bottom of the squat. So we're utilizing her her glutes a little bit more. The same went for jumps and plyometrics where I had her do a box jump. She was already seated on the box and I had her go up. And when you watch her jump, same thing. She leans all the way forward to try to gain some momentum to go up. So now I told her, I don't want you to lean all the way forward from the bottom of this box. Like I want you to minimize that lean as much as possible and focus on going straight up. And you actually saw her knees in a good way were utilized more and you saw more hip extension on the way up. Things that I use with all of my basketball players in different ways, but I made sure to personalize that to her and how that movement needed to be changed to benefit her movement. I hope I didn't go too far off course with that one there. That was that was a long trip.
0: No, I love that. I loved being on long journey with you, and I have a couple questions actually to follow up with that. So you shared what you did for her specifically. Did it relieve her symptoms?
1: It it, it was funny. It was a process because that player was relied upon, and the coaches for months were on me about it because like what what is her status? I don't know. She's working every day, even if we're not lifting, we're stretching, we're doing mobility, like. That girl was dedicated to getting back on the court, and it took, I can't remember if it was three or four months of us constantly working together, the coaches every week asking where was she at, and then finally the head coach and assistant coach come up to me and they go, she looks amazing, and I was watching her, she was faster, getting up off the ground quicker for rebounds, Um, just overall getting down the court faster, and she wasn't tired. And I'm like, it's the same thing I've been telling you for three, four months now. We're working on it. Like, it's just paying off now. It takes time. She was hurt. And it was very rewarding to have two people that were where she's at for three, four months to finally be like, wow, what did you do?
0: Do you find that most of your clients, whether they're professional, recreational athletes, or just your average human being... Do they have the patience and the consistency to work at it every day for three to four months without losing the motivation and the drive to keep going?
1: It depends on the person. And you know what the answer is? And it's usually no. It, yeah. Everyone kind of wants, as you know, you've heard a million times, everyone wants the magic pill. And unfortunately, that's just not it. Because in the case of the athlete I just talked about, that's something that was going on for a very long time. and Especially if somebody has low back pain, I'd say would be the biggest. That is, people age that low back pain; it's suddenly unbearable. And you need to understand, I'm changing your mechanics that you've had for years. So every when you started feeling back pain, that wasn't the start of however you were moving. That was just kind of over time. There was a straw that broke the camel's back, and suddenly you're feeling it. So I have to take years of something and try to change that in an hour a week, two hours a week over the course of your lifetime, right? I'm supposed to match that somehow. So I think that's where people fall short is they kind of want, here's this $25 program I bought online that said it's going to help my back pain. And that's just the example I'm using. I'm not mentioning anything specific, right? Uh, but something that's going to take time. And that's what I relate to my clients that, I'm always evaluating you we're not doing one evaluation and then i give you something and that's it it's not the end all be all i'm going to constantly tweak what we're doing because if you adapt to something now i'm going to change that up to keep moving you forward so right. to go back to your question most people don't understand how long that's going to take but if you can relay the why behind what you're doing like i threw out the 27 and 33 percent on the decrease in strength if you can have your reasoning behind everything they're generally going to jump on board at least for enough of a period of time where they start to see a difference. And then, you know, the things start to turn in their head and they're like, okay, so this is better and I feel better here. And suddenly I can, I've had someone say there's a big step in my backyard that I like struggled with for years trying to do my gardening. And now I just go up it. I don't know how long it took with her. She never brought it up, but we were working together for a little under six months, I think, by the time she said that. Yeah. So that stare, which hindered her, and she never thought about telling me, she's like, you know, I just realized I don't have trouble with that stare anymore.
0: Yes, I get those comments too. And they're probably one of the more rewarding parts of the job is knowing that that consistent work is paying off over time and that it's giving people a higher quality of life and allowing them to enjoy their daily activities more. I mean, we were talking about professional and recreational athletes. Um, But also just being able to get through your day without being in pain is so important. And I think, you know, I came into this work from a back injury. So when you were speaking about lower back injury, in the back of my mind, I was kind of laughing because I had an acute injury, but I learned through Pilates that it was actually um, a lot of other factors that led to my body being vulnerable. So that when I was doing this really heavy lifting, I was already kind of, vulnerable because of my mechanics and because of the shape of my spine. Um, So if I had learned Pilates before I, you know, had bulged just to my back, I would have been a lot better off, but having to rehabilitate that injury so that I wasn't making it worse. Every time I sat down (laughs) was really, really important. And to your point, these things often will tend to progress over time. I think a lot of people will ignore pain or restriction until it gets to the point that it's so unbearable that they will finally seek help and be motivated to be consistent in their practice to try to get rid of it. But at that point, like you mentioned, we're really undoing so much and that takes a lot of time to do it. You had also uh, mentioned something that I found really interesting when you're talking about your basketball player, you went and saw her play and watched her move in so many different ways in a really dynamic sport. I don't know many coaches, well, maybe, you know, athletic coaches, but physical therapists, Pilates teachers, um, movement specialists that actually get to watch their clients in action. That's pretty unique. Can you speak on that for a moment? And of course, my follow-up question is, can you get the same information if you're working with them in the gym or a studio um, without seeing them do their sport?
1: It's, It's kind of a yes and no. So in that case, I was... full-time employee. I was the assistant strength and conditioning coordinator. So I was on campus all day. So it was easy for me to get out to the field and I had everyone's schedules. So it was an advantage for me because of the setting I was in. It's not as easy now that I own my own business. And while I do still get out to games and things for some of my clients, I'm not on campus with them. So I I will say that that was a big advantage. And that's why I really loved being a college strength coach was because it wasn't even just me going to them. It was often midday. They would come in and sometimes they wouldn't even need anything. They would just come in and talk to me, but they could come in and be like something didn't feel right at practice. I'm like, all right, well, what time are we practicing tomorrow? I'll come out and I'll look at it. So that was an advantage. And I will say it depends when they're playing, you get the truest form of them. Cause if I'm in the weight room in a gym or even on a court alone with them, I'm dictating what they're doing. And I do a lot of drills where like, I can assume based on what they said, especially if it's about I felt some knee pain, some back pain when I was doing XYZ, I'm going to put them in a position where I can assess a little better. When they're playing in a game, the beauty of sports is nothing is predictable. So I get to see them in their truest form. And if it's a sport, it's why they're seeing me. It's what they want to do. I I'm secondary to playing basketball, football, soccer, running, whatever the case is. I'm supposed to enhance their ability to do so. So when I do see them in their element, that tells me a whole lot because I wouldn't have noticed that if one, she didn't come to me to stretch, but two, if I didn't go to practice, I would put her in positions, but I don't think I'd understand just how much she needed that help until I saw her actually on defense and people blowing by her, which when you're a division one athlete, it's hard to get away with so much. And, you know, it's. I know NIL NIL deals are a new thing now and people are getting paid, but it it is a job that you dedicated yourself to and you're you're under the gun, whether you like it or not. So being able to see her, it it just made a huge difference. And it built my relationship with her when the kids see you there, whether it's high school or college or professional. So I guess those aren't kids when it's the professional guys, but um it builds a big relationship with them. And that's been one of the things I'm most proud of is the relationships I've built with my athletes, my clients, and you know, I have some clients where their kids run out and they're like, Hey, Kyle. And it's just nice. It's like, you're part of the family, even though you're only there one, two times a week.
0: Well, and you have that consistent communication about what's happening in their bodies. And I won't go into the deep end of the pool about how we hold emotion in the body and stress and all those things. Cause we could ramble about that for a while, but just the fact that you have consistent communication with your clients, whether they're division one athletes or someone who's trying to get up the step in their garden. Um, I think that makes a huge difference in your ability to understand what's happening for them with their experiences in their body and being able to help them. I, I also um, we've been talking a bit about athletes. I'm curious What would you expect to see in your non-athlete, particularly in our American culture, many people are sitting many hours a day, sometimes every day of the week, whether they're commuting to work, sitting at a desk. A lot of people are working from home, so they're just sitting at a desk at home or on their couch. What type of muscle imbalances would you expect to see from people who are sitting a lot?
1: You would be surprised as you see a lot of the same things you see from the athletes, And I'll bring up one example that gets a lot of people, especially with the setting of the pandemic, you know, so I won't say everyone, but so many people are working from home. They take less breaks, their break is getting up, getting a glass of water and then going back to the desk. Whereas even before I would say in office, a lot of times you're gonna walk around the office, talk to some people, you might walk and get a cup of coffee. I'm speaking on my experience in San Francisco. I guess when I'm saying that and walking a few blocks to get a coffee, but tight hamstrings, I'll say, is a big thing. And as basketball was always my main sport. Although I've, like you said, I've worked with over 50 different teams. Um, and that's from all ranges of sports. But tight hamstrings are probably the biggest thing in common that both my athletes and my general population clients have. And those tight hamstrings are going to create a pelvic tilt that then creates that little arch in that low back. And then they're sitting forward all day. On top of that, so now the hip flexors are tight, the hamstrings are tight, they're arching their low back. It's that snowball effect again that I talked about when we first started.
0: I just um, want you to know that I just changed my pelvic tilt. As <laughs> I now have more length in my lower back. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> have
1: you ever been in a group call with a chiropractor and like, "Hi, I'm Doctor. And so and so, I'm a chiropractor." And
0: you're- yeah, you sit up a little straighter. <laughs>
1: I'm glad I, that I just did that to you, though.
0: <laughs> yep. Usually, people do that around me, but I do it myself too.
1: <laughs> but we all slide. It's so easy, especially when you're here all day, and it's just lower and lower into that laptop, and the amount of times we all notice how far forward we are. It's like, okay, let me just sit up and reposition myself. But that's what makes something so simple that everyone can take right now. Take a 10 minute walk middle of the day, take a walk for my clients. I always have them warm up before we work out and I'll give them maybe like four exercises in a row that I say from here, this exercise to this exercise, take your 10 minute walk, do these four exercises to get your hip, low back and shoulders loose and then go back to work. And especially in the elderly population, I have a senior who she works her freaking butt off. Like when I get there, she's like, I'm sorry, I haven't moved all day. And it's like, It's 6 p.m. What the hell have you been doing? And she's, I I haven't really left since 8 a.m. And she just goes, goes, goes. And now she's, I've been on her about just give me a little bit, something throughout the day, 10 minutes, even five, start somewhere. And she, it was just two weeks ago. She's like, I went for two extra walks this week and I did those exercises. And she's like, I feel great. She's like, maybe it's a placebo, but I feel great. I'm like all right, there we go. but it was really just you went from zero movement throughout the day to just simple little warm-up range of motion exercises. again, four exercises that takes two, two and a half minutes tops and then a ten minute walk.
0: So if you had to recommend one thing for people to do if they do sit a lot in order to create more balanced muscle development, would it be walking?
1: See, that's like a loaded gun right there, because there's not one thing that's going to get you there. And it has to be the big picture of that 10 minute walk and four exercises is doing wonders for her. But so is the session we're doing once a week. Right. And so is her nutrition where she admits if I granted she's not on any sort of diet, but we, you know, you have conversations with your clients and when she doesn't eat well or she goes off the rails. It affects her the next day. So yeah. it's definitely multifactorial, but I would say constantly moving, not constantly, but consistent movement is the biggest thing that people could do, especially if you're sitting at a desk all day. Yeah. If you just get done with a big call or a podcast and you've been sitting here for an hour, get up, walk around, do some light movements for two, three minutes, and then go back. You know, after you take your lunch, walking is actually good for digestion. Assuming you haven't had like 2,000 calories in your lunch, it actually helps with digestion. So go for a 10-minute walk afterwards. You know, Little things will go a long way. And if your lunch is an hour and you ate for what? You sat there for 20 minutes? You still have some time to do that walk. For some, they don't, right? And it, it just is what it is. That's life. But, but finding time for just those little walks, those little bouts of movement are going to go a long way for the average person sitting at their desk at home.
0: Well, just for the record, I've been doing glute squeezes during the podcast. So there are things you can do without even getting up. They're not as good as going for a walk, but
1: they are (laughs) cool. And it looks like nothing, right? I didn't notice, but it is something.
0: I'm trying to keep my face looking normal and not go up and down and up and down while I'm squeezing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You have a special certification for senior fitness, and you had talked about your client who is a senior who it sounds like works from a seated position much of the day. Is there anything specific like for our listeners who might be seniors who are looking for specific exercises that would be helpful for them? Is there anything that you would recommend that they do that they can do kind of on their own?
1: It's so dependent on the person, right? Cause when you hear senior, you, you think, how do I put it lightly without, without offending anybody, you, you You have a thing that you think of seniors, can't move as well, higher risk for injury, which is true. I mean, somebody who's 70 is going to be, forget the number, somewhere between four and seven more times likely to fall than somebody like 30 years um, younger than them. But there are plenty of people who are seniors who are swimming, riding bikes, running, squatting, deadlifting. I have all of these. So it really depends on the person and it comes down. I will say for seniors, like again, it is generally high risk. You got to meet them where they're at. Start a little lower than that to build up moving competency. And just like anyone else, you're going to build up from there. But you do have to be aware, do they have osteoarthritis, osteopenia? Like these things are common within the elderly. And something that I think of that I won't go too long into it, but it's called Wolf's Law, which basically says you're gonna stimulate some bone growth based on the angle at which you're hitting the bone. So you have to make sure that it's a wide range program that's hitting them from all the different angles so that they get the benefits to all different parts of the body because we can get muscles around your femur working to build up that femur, right? that big bone in your thigh. But we wanna mix that up to make sure all the different parts of that bone are touched from a different angle to stimulate I won't say bone growth because there's only so much you could do, but to help increase that longevity. So for seniors, I do like to mix it up a lot while also being, if you've ever looked into Christian Thompson, he's a professor and researcher at University of San Francisco. He talks about being task specific. So he basically, he means that don't just target one muscle group, but target what do they need to do? So for me, I have one client he's had both hips replaced and three hernias, two of them which were surgically repaired. He has like no hip flexors. So how do you go upstairs? And that was one of the things he came to me to. And he's like, nobody will let me walk and go upstairs. He's six foot two and about 250 and I'm five foot six, 160. Um, He towers me, but we gotta make him walk, right? That's part of it. So he can't really get a lot of hip flexion for stairs. So what I've done for him is I have him lay supine, so on his back, straighten his legs out. And I put my pressure on his leg so that he can't move it. And I say, try to lift your leg up. And even though you're not going to be able to mimic, like you're squeezing from the front of that thigh, or I'm sorry, front of the hip, like you're going to bring that leg up. And I hold for three to five seconds at a time. We do that 10 to 12 times just to get that hip flexor working. And then we take it to walking later on. So I'm trying to activate those muscles that he has trouble with. Then go to walking. I took it from what's one thing to you have to focus on three hundred, but that's how I've had to go about it with him because everybody's so different that there's not going to be one thing. And on top of that, I stimulated his hip flexor, but I focus on glute engagement on his walking. So I do it a band resisted walking because he also had a knee replacement. So he's, he walks gingerly around that knee. So now using the band the way I do forces his hips to kick in. Otherwise his posture is going to be enough that he feels he has poor posture that he's leaning forward too much. And I will leave that question at that and open it to your questions if you have them, because I I didn't fully answer it. I gave you a hundred different things.
0: No, I love your answer. Your answer um, is, and to me, it's so complete and that, yes, there are some General things we will see in um people who are over, say, 60 or 70 years old. However, every person and their body is unique. So they're not going to have the same issues. My mother is over 70. She's one of the most fit, healthy people I know. There are people younger than me that could not like touch what she does in a day. Um, she has a great balance, you know, all of the things. And that being said. She might be at a higher risk of falling than she, at least than she was when she was in her thirties and forties, for sure. Um, of course she does Pilates. So, you know, we balance it out.
1: <laughs> I, I, bet she has, I bet she has someone good teaching her.
0: You know, she does. <laughs> um, but also one of the thoughts that came to mind as you were talking is sarcopenia, right? That as you get older, your muscles um, tend not to, to develop as quickly and tend to actually atrophy um, much more so than when you're younger. And so I go back to you as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, do you believe that strength and conditioning is more important as you get older to kind of combat sarco- things like sarcopenia?
1: hundred percent. And, you know, I will go back to your question of what's the one thing they could do. And it's to get started early. Mm. A lot of people, I I've had so many people that it's, I've fallen, I've fallen, I've fallen. And when you talk to those who haven't fallen, it's, I don't need the help. I I'm good. And then it turns to I time goes on and I've fallen. It's, you know, the best defense is a good offense and just getting ahead of it and staying active is going to go a long way. And the later you start, you know, if you wait for things to go bad, then that process is already on the decline and you're just trying to level it off at some point, hopefully go up. But Staying active—it's just so important because if you look into any book that talks about aging, they're gonna say, well, it's not just resistance training; it's also cardio. And what about when you're sitting? What are you doing? And there's even some things on that of how you're sitting, what you're doing in that non-activity part of the day plays a big role in the elderly and just keeping things active. So it's multi—definitely multifactorial. But get started early, and, and even. How early if-
0: how early is early now <laughs> like yesterday?
1: Yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. It's it. it you have to be preventative and everything. You can't wait for it to come to you because father time is going to win a hundred percent of the time, but you can delay that by exercising yeah. and having somebody, you know, one thing that I offer, because I do know it's expensive, right? So I offer something called the four-week walkthrough, which is we meet once a month. It's a 90-minute session, and I give you your program for the week. And in those 90 minutes, I teach you every exercise. I put you through it for a set or two. I analyze your form, and then we take notes on it. So if it's someone that was like, hey, probably the most basic thing we look at in squats, right? A knee valgus, Knees caving in together. I'll write in your notes. When you're squatting, don't let your knees cave in. And then they have their notes after and like, right, Kyle corrected me on this. And then he wrote it down and then they have what they're doing for the month. Um, But that's one thing that people can do is it doesn't need to be somebody watching you 24 seven. You just have to find a way to get started and you can do it on your own, whether it's that 10 minute walking, some resistance training, and you're getting taught how to do it, which is the most important thing. A lot of times people jump into it too fast. They don't know what they're doing. And I had one that goes right after surgery that she had she lays on the floor puts her legs up on the wall legs straight up against the wall thinking she's stretching her back and hamstrings and she throws her back out and her chiropractor contacts me and goes I don't know what the hell she's trying to do but she needs her help
0: <laughs> I do so, that particular restorative position but probably not under the same circumstances that she was doing it so knowing so, what's oh. doing and why is so important.
1: She was in no spot. This was after chemotherapy, after being in a car accident. Um, it just wasn't for her to even get down on the ground was tough. And then for her to get in that position.
0: Yeah. Oftentimes, so now she doesn't do that. Yeah. Sometimes we're so desperate to find solutions. Anyone offering an answer tends to, you know, be someone we're willing to listen to. And it's so important to really vet out who you're seeking advice from and actually knowing that they know what they're talking about. Um, I have a few more questions for you. Uh, One of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, your women's fitness specialist certification from um, NASM. I I see a lot of people specializing in particular um, subgroups or categories and women specific exercises. As somebody who really appreciates co-ed <laughs> and um, has spent most of my life working alongside men and playing sports with men and all those things, sometimes, quite frankly, just on a personal note, I look at those things and I think, am I really so different? Um, and so I'm curious, what does that look, what does a certification like that look like? that? What is that, How does that inform your coaching of um, your women or female clients and athletes? Mm-hmm.
1: So I will say there are some differences that I do address. So especially in female athletes, when it's the off season, i make core and low back, a big, big, big thing that I press on right away. Because when I say off season, that's usually the time when we can really get after it. When we're in season, I'm just trying to maintain, make sure they stay healthy, they have bumps or bruises from the season. I'm just helping them get through and stay as healthy as possible without adding or without taking tread off the tires. So in the off season is when you can build a more in-depth program. And something that's always been fascinating to me is it was my kinesiology book in my undergrad at Sacred Heart. And there was a line in it. I actually went back like eight years later, maybe I read that textbook all over again. I saved it and I'm like, this will be useful. And then I read it like two, three years ago. And it said that women have more lax tendons in their low back. And when um, it's when they're on their period, it's actually even more lax on top of that. One of the reasons being is that men have a more anterior center of gravity just slightly. It's not like it's a world apart, but that actually makes the male tendons in that low back a little more tall. So it can take a little bit more. So for my female athletes, I do focus on that core and low back for that reason, especially when they're college athletes, because, you know, it's a monthly occurrence and it's something that I've had to monitor myself and that I would weigh them once a week and they'd come in and, you know, I, I build a good relationship with my athletes. So look them in and say, calm oh, on my period. I don't feel good. I feel bloated. And then, you know, the coach to see the weights and I have to be like, Hey, nothing to be worried about. She put on four pounds, but as high as seven pounds depending on what research you're reading but i will say the certification itself you alluded to it you have to make sure you're vetting the people that you're working with because everything that i just mentioned i was doing before i had that certification and if i'm being totally blunt anyone who had that certification i don't know if it's the same across the board for others that are within the same realm but it wasn't too specific about women's health, working around the cycle. I would have liked a little more science behind it on what to do, and that certification, if that was all I had without my experience, I think I would fail some people, to be honest with you. So you have to know who you're working with and why, because it wasn't that certification that helped me. It was my experience of traveling the country with female athletes being there for them almost 24 hours a day to be able to accommodate the changes they were going through, whatever they needed, how they felt. It's a big deal to be honest with you. So that's what, what I always tell people is make sure you vet who you're working with and understand that if they have a certification that their experience lines up with it because that certification I spent less than a week on studied for about five days, took the exam, passed, you know, and went about my business
0: yeah so i didn't know we were going to talk about menstrual cycles i love our conversations <laughs> i never know where they're going to lead <laughs> and you know what though
1: i i think right I, I i won't say there's an elephant in the room but there kind of is there's a male right now talking about the female cycle and training women which is why you have to vet people because again as a male i'm telling you that the certification it doesn't have bearings on me helping you. So you have to make sure that there's an education and experience around who's helping you past that because I, I will never know exactly what you go through, but I've done oh, my research you and you don't, don't. I have the experience <laughs> to be able to at least apply something to help you and understand and know like, Hey, based on what you're feeling now, I think this is the best route to take to have you feeling better today to get to your race to get to your garden, whatever the case may be.
0: I really appreciate you saying that, Kyle. I mean, I'm joking around about, you know, I never know where our conversations are going to lead. I love it. I I learned so much. I also um, experience in my own body what you talked about. So intuitively, I have learned as I've gotten older that I am much more prone to injury um, when right before my menstrual cycle begins and during that time. And I didn't have... The formal background training that you have to know the exact reason why i understand when women are pregnant tendons and ligaments tend to be much more looser more flexible so it kind of makes sense that also the cycle that we go through every month to prepare ourselves for that you will see similar symptoms of what it would be like to actually be you know pregnant um so as an athlete i recognize like if i really want to push i kind of plan things around the best time during the cycle to do that and also cut myself some slack when, um, it's not a good time for me to be pushing because I have had plenty of injury and I don't like having to rehab it or live with chronic pain either. Um, so I appreciate your formal training and your experience working with female athletes. And I hate that there's a difference between us, but yeah, we got to respect it. There is a difference. And what you brought up is so important. Um, so thank you for having the understanding and awareness and also the openness to talk about it because, not everyone has that comfort either.
1: Exactly. And let me throw another fact at you because you, yeah. you said I hate that there's differences. So I'll throw something good at you. So if you go and look at strength differences in men and women, right? Men generally start higher than women. It It is what it is. But how do they improve? And what you see is that it's right in line. So if I'm improving 10%, you're improving 10%. Now, for some people, I, I put a post on Instagram maybe a year ago. I think I did a whole week about gender differences when it comes to training. And some people just jumped down my throat about that statement of, have you ever seen like this guy's lifting 300 and this girl's lifting you know 160? It's like, well, let's put this into perspective. I start out at 200 and you start out at 100. 10% for me is 20. 10% for you is 10. And now we build a gap because of those, like our starting points that my 10% leads to more absolute weight kind of than yours would if say we're squatting or something like that. But the percent at which we increase is very similar between men and women. There's no significant difference.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. There's a
1: whole lot of research. So if anybody want, wants to, um, make those statements to you. I could send you a, a meta-analysis that has all those resources in it.
0: I appreciate that. Kyle, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate you being on the show, sharing with us about the importance of balanced muscle development and also sharing some of the takeaways from your years of experience working with different clients, athletes of all different ages. Um, if anybody would like to reach out to ask you other questions, follow up with you, or um, ha- have your services. I mean, I'm, I myself, I'm thinking about your monthly, um, program. Cause that sounds amazing. And what a great resource for your clients. Uh, how can they reach you?
1: So they can email me at support at the or they can go right to my website, thebayfitness.com, And there's a chat function right on the bottom right corner. When you go on the website and that'll send a message right to me, or they could go on Instagram, the underscore
0: bay underscore fitness. Excellent. And are you doing a virtual and in-person or all in-person training?
1: It's all in-person.
0: And you're serving the whole San Francisco Bay Area?
1: So serving in San Francisco on a client-by-client basis. Um, it just depends where they're at, because if I'm bringing equipment to your home, I need to be able to park somewhere in close proximity to bring it in. But all of them are in Sonoma County and even up to Napa.
0: Excellent. Kyle, thank you so much Great talking with you as always, and look forward to chatting with you again soon.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That wraps up this episode of Mindful Movement with Naya. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we'd appreciate your support through Buy Me A Coffee, link in show notes. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. It takes less than a minute and it really helps us out. If you'd like more Mindful Movement resources, check out our website, at naiapilates.com.